Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so in a series of conversations with comics creators about their lives, their work, and comics. So sit back and enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back to Blockhead. Yes, I've returned. I've returned one week after I said I would indeed return with part two of my interview with Ryan Heshka. And yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're shocked. I'm sure you are surprised. Uh, but here I am. Uh, how dare you doubt me, doubt my word. Yes, well, you have reason to. Uh, there, there's been a, a lot of times I said I would be back, and I wasn't. <laughs> but now I, I am. I like to be a dependable fellow. It's a good thing to be, right? A dependable fellow. Of course, it sounds pretty dull. I am, I am a dependable fellow. As opposed to being an excitable boy. For those of you of a certain age who remember Warren Zevon's great record from the late 70s. Yeah, his follow-up should have been Dependable Fellow. <laughs> I can see it now. It would have been a hit, a big smash. Listen to me, Warren. I'll steer you straight. Oh, well. May he rest in peace. Well, here we are, being dependable and uh, hopefully not boring you too badly and uh, and I hope this this interview will not bore you it will be uh, it will be it will hit you where you live because Ryan and I talk about more about his work more about painting more about art more about Batman who Ryan is obsessed with and Batman is of course uh, it looms large in Ryan's oeuvre and it's it's it, Ryan is in so many ways the greatest Batman artist of his generation and, and I know you think that's crazy I uh, probably think that's heresy but especially when you think of the great contributions of so many wonderful Batman artists over the years, Neil Adams and Frank Miller and David Mazzucchelli, and you know, there's a long, long list of people that I'm not even familiar with because I stopped reading Batman comics a long time ago. But Ryan gets to something in Batman that is very um, mysterious and otherworldly and, and unfathomable. And, and of all things, Batman should not be explainable. He should not be rational. I mean, Batman, a guy who wears a Batman outfit, a bat outfit, runs around the city wearing a cape and a cowl. Somebody who runs around the city dressed like that, beating up on so-called bad guys. I mean, you know, the bad guys that he identifies the bad guys. Or in the case of people like the Joker or Two-Face, you know, uh, other similar kinds of characters who have escaped from Arkham Asylum or wherever. It's got to be uh, a little bit, well, more than a little bit strange uh, and really, you know, uh, out of the realm of normality in, in, or rationality is actually the And the fact that he, it, it is a completely irrational response to the world, and this is an irrational character, well, that comes through in Ryan's work, and I, I don't know who else, who else does a Batman that is is as strange as Batman should be. And uh, Ryan gets it. Ryan gets it. So, anyway, uh, and he also gets pulp art, and he gets Golden Age comics, and he gets so many other great things, Roger Corman movies, and 
you name it, David Lynch, and a pile of great stuff that's put into a Ryan Heshka blender. It comes out as great, wonderful, entertaining, and beautiful art. So let's get right to it then. My conversation with Ryan Heshka, part two, is here for you today. Enjoy it. So that became a driving that became a driving um, factor for for my work post you know 2016. Well, I, you know, I read um, I, as I said before, I was kind of late on on the train with your work, but um, I read Mean Girls Club just after the Supreme Court ruling here in the states on abortion. Yeah, and um, you know, I, I it was I thought this is the absolutely perfect book to be reading in regard to this political moment, you know, um, because it, it summed up my own anger and my own fear. Yeah. And uh, and it, it and I think it speaks a lot to that sense of anger and and injustice, you know, and injustice that has been foisted upon women, but foisted upon so many people, you know, throughout throughout the reign of the patriarchy, if you will, but certainly, you know, we're talking in, we're talking about recent times. Uh, you, you see it every day, you know, uh, in, as a result of the Me Too movement, bringing these things to light and whatnot. Um, you know, yeah. there's a lot to be pissed off about, you know? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And um, yeah, maybe even more so than 2016. I thought it was pretty bad then, but now it seems like, oh, like we're not, but it's five six years later we haven't moved forward and in some ways we've moved backwards so yeah there's a kind of regressive movement. yeah there's a regressive attitude and sort of like oh all the you know um the people that were quiet before when it would when we thought it was good times it's like all well, those people are obviously finding a voice now and it's like oh so i think i think seth said it on on your on your podcast it's like things weren't it's not like things were he, he anyways he had this i this this notion of how naive we were, we were that things were kind of stable and and that like maybe like 20 years ago but what he realized was that sort of idea of like oh things weren't any more stable or better it's just people those people didn't have their mics turned on you know they were still yeah. racist and they were still sexist and they were still like their their attitudes weren't any different but they didn't have these platforms and now we've got platforms and it's like, well, that's, I guess for better or for worse, people are, you know, using these platforms. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, there's nothing more contagious than hate and anger. Mm -hmm. It's easy. Yeah. Easy. And, and it's a fallback. It's a, and, and you can see it in, we were talking about the lack of comedies and where you could kind of see it in, in the popular culture too. hate and anger and dominance, uh, violence are all prevalent, you know, through so much of our culture. Yeah, our popular culture and um, and they're easy go to responses. You know, um, it's easy to hate somebody, you know, who's different than you. And yeah, uh, people prey on that. And then they you know, people have built fortunes on that. And um, I mean, you know, uh, Rush Limbaugh and and talk radio and all of that. They they built, um, you know, an entire infrastructure around hate. And yeah. Um, and unfortunately, it swayed millions of people, and you know we're see, we're reaping the consequences of it now. And uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, but yeah, so these are these are things as a as a father of a of a young daughter that I you know I I think about constantly, and I never thought about these things before. I was never political. I didn't think 
what was going on in the world had really a lot to do with me. This is my own sort of naive ignorance that I lived in, you know, in up, up until the 2000s, you know. Um, before that, I was just doing my thing and just kind of thought the world goes on and things won't really change and, and that. And um, yeah, but, you know, you get some years behind you and you start to see things a little differently. Well, yeah, and things you never thought could happen, happen. And I, yeah. I think, you know, I, I remember when, well, you know, there's so many different events throughout your, your lifespan that you, you know, you never thought that could happen. And it did, you know, um, yeah. falling of the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Union was something that I grew up in the 60s and 70s with with the berlin wall you know as a kind of permanent monument never thought anything could change or the soviet union would ever go away or change and boom it you know all of a sudden collapsed you know of course we're in a totally different environment but not so different you know in regard to that uh, cold war um, mentality well, people are just trying to build walls in different locations now. So yeah, it's, you yeah, know, right? yeah. Uh, never, yeah, never went away. But yeah, things, I mean, things can change for sure. That's a great example of of how things can actually physically and, and mentally shift. But it's, you know, people are, you know, are we going to do the hard, are we going to do the work? How do we do the work? Where do we start? Mm-hmm. It's very, uh, it's, it's twisted around right now. But well, uh, you know, I think. So in some sense, and not to overemphasize the social, the sociological impact of your, your comics, but... Yeah, we should get back to comics at some point. This is, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because because the, the comics themselves don't read like, I mean, Mean Girls Club does not read like like a, a political treatise or a, a manifesto. You know, I mean, it does and it doesn't. You know, it's got that manifesto quality to it. But mm-hmm. I mean, Pink Pink Dawn reads like a warped Dick Tracy story. You know, it's like it, <laughs> it, it really is um, this this you know very again fever dream approach to to a kind of comics that has been around a long time. You know, and uh, except it's told from you know a different point of view, and in, instead of being from the authoritarian patriarchal point of view, the Dick Tracy point of view, this yeah. is told from those outside of that system um who you know in this particular book we have the opportunity to see why they're outside of that system and and what kind of injustice led to that and then what their natural response to it is going to be and uh, and it's done in this again in stylistically you know i just love the way you you graphically you're drawing your storytelling it it's it is a warped version of the past you know it is a language that comes out of uh golden age comic books you know yeah and very specifically you mentioned dick tracy i I love chester gould's work so i was really drawing um quite heavily um in terms of like the characters the sort of the the weird warpness of the characters sort of reflecting their 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 personalities and in their in their physical traits like the 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 police chief is sort of Rats, Ratzenberger, I think, is his name in the in the comic. He has sort of has like a sort of rat quality to his face, you know, sort of a a long pointy nose and and that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, really drawing on that sort of comic language of of Chester Gould, which I love and which is so effective, you know. Oh my God, yeah. It, and the I mean, ink really. work, just the the juicy wet ink work, you know, is like, oh man, I just want to, you know, I wanted to dig into that world as well as the sort of the anti anti patriarchy. I wanted to sort of enjoy myself in this lush world of, of brushwork and blacks and whites and, you know, and then that sort of layer of pink over top of it to kind of pop things. So, so, so is this, was this book done um, ink on board or is it, is it, uh, are we talking digital? 
I, I ink with gouache actually. So yeah, it's all traditional, but I, I ink with gouache. I find, um, I personally find any ink kind of like shiny and not as sort of like, a, using using black gouache, it's, it's very velvety and very opaque and uh, it's just sort of my preferred medium, but it's basically, yeah, ink ink on paper is is what the. What and the then you're it, you're um in the printing is when the pinks are laid on. Is that it? Yeah. So I did. Yeah, I did those layers. Actually, I did those by hand too. So I laid sort of like a vellum over top, and then sort of did grayscale um shading. Um. So I did it really the hard way. I got to find a way to sort of add those layers um digitally because it's very time consuming. Oh yeah. And, uh, can be kind of frustrating to do it with the vellum but i also want that sort of like textured you know um that hand hand drawn hand painted texture versus like a block of mm -hmm. color or a super even gradient from like light to dark where you can tell it was done on the computer yeah. um you well, know you and that's another reason that i didn't hand uh, that i hand lettered everything versus like doing it uh doing the lettering digitally is because i needed to sort of like um hold together as a cohesive you know um a cohesive Heshka piece rather than sort of like, well, this is the, here's, the, I used Helvetica or whatever, you know, whatever sort of like canned font or some canned comic font or something like that. Um, so every, everything is, yeah, every part of that is, is, uh, is hand drawn and hand lettered. So, so you're doing the gray tones and the pinks on, on vellum. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. That's great. And it's all in gouache. And all in gouache. Yeah. So, um, you know, cause it's, it's, it's beautiful. What what led you to those choices as opposed to working in full color in this particular book? I mean, it, obviously, the subject matter just sort of I'm answering my own question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, definitely uh, sort of. Uh, well, the, the, the first Mean Girls comic was self-published on on a RISG, uh, through the risograph uh, printing technique. So it was like really like picked two colors. Um, it was, it was my wife, Miranda, that actually came up with the, the, the black and pink color scheme. Um, and as soon as she kind of, she was looking at a book of swatches and she kind of pulled those out and it's like, oh yeah, that totally, that totally works. Um, so it has that sort of like eighties, you know, neon, but then sort of a fifties art style. And it was sort of drawing on a few different sort of eras. Um, and then I sort of just stuck with it. That sort of became the, the Mean Girls Club brand. So there was really no question about like, should we make this full color or anything? It was like just rolled right into that, you know, um, punk poster uh, color scheme. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely has that. It remind, as a matter of fact, I'm glad you mentioned that. It reminds me of, um, I was like 16, 17 when punk was happening and reminds me of some of those early graphics for for uh, for a bunch of bands in the 70s and um, that was flying around at the time. Yeah, gig posters, that sort of thing, yeah, just everything exactly. very simple. And obviously, yeah, it comes down to economy of, of time and money too, where it's like, you know, um, how how can I get this done in five months? And yeah. full color was not an option, so. So, uh, you know, um, well, yeah, one thing about the the gouache blacks uh, in in Pink Dawn, um, and it's it's not gouache on the Mean Girls Club. Then it's a it's it's done with traditional ink through the risograph process. Um, actually, all my comics have been inked with with gouache. Gouache. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So anyway, um, there's a vel uh, like a violet kind of undertone to to the black in uh, some of the areas in this in the pink dawn book that's really beautiful um, sorry you said a violet yeah it's almost like violet or la you know deep purple yeah that's 
That's from overprinting the pink over the black. Oh, okay. So you put pink over the black. See, yeah. So the, the publisher chose to do that with the characters to make them sort of pop off the background. Yeah. And I think it works beautifully. They they that was a great suggestion because it's just enough to separate it. And I mean, you notice that you you're sort of you have an eye for these things definitely. But even on a sort of subconscious level, I think it sort of works for people because it just it just pops them off. You know, oh, pops man. them off the surface. I love it. It's yummy. <laughs> it's really it's yeah. It's no, when I when I opened the box, it was like really it was a it was a really good day when i got to open that box of advanced copies it was really nice to see and no brow i mean kudos to no brow um out of the uk they they published the most beautiful comics and children's books and it was sort of my mission like i i just a, a bit of backstory about the mean girls club when i was when i when i i did it as a self-published comic um and i had a show that um I did in in Portland at the at Wyden Kennedy, which is an ad agency, but they had a they have a gallery space in the main floor, and I I did a show of the Mean Girls Club, um, and actually I used the show as a sort of a, a, an excuse to do the first comic. So it was sort of like the 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 show pitch came first, and then the comic came right after that because I'm like, oh, now I have to actually produce a comic for the show, and we built out a clubhouse and all this sort of thing. So that all sort of came together at the same time. Um, but at that at that same time too was the icon conference which is the illustration conference that moves around every two years in different locations in the united states and uh nobrow had a table there so mm -hmm. i was really really focused on getting sam arthur the the, the publisher the editor of nobrow uh getting a copy in his hands of the of the mean girls club because i really wanted to do something with nobrow i had no sort of you know other comic book experience, but I thought, you know, I have to, I have to get it in his hands. Um, I don't think they were taking submissions online, so I knew this was sort of my one shot to do this, and uh, and that's how that panned out. They shortly after that they wanted to publish it as part of their uh, 17 by 23 series, and, and then it sort of turned into the the graphic novel. But um, yeah, they were kind of behind it from the get go. So having no brow boosting boosting the series really sort of helped to launch the comic arm of, of my career, um, as well as sort of the, the Mean Girls uh, characters. Oh, well, it's 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 great that, it, it, you know, they did a wonderful job and it's great that you're working with them. Um, was it they who introduced you to the use of Rizograph or was that something that you no. on your own? Yeah, no, that was uh, um, our, my friends, um, Mark Todd and Esther Pearl Watson in, in uh, Los Angeles. They um, they did, they were doing a lot of zines. They're really big zine people and they do paintings as well. They do all kinds of stuff. It's their output is incredible. Um, but um, they sort of introduced me to the world of zines. And I, you know, asked about the sort of techniques that they were using and their they turned me on to the the, the risograph uh, technique, so that's sort of how I discovered risograph, and it was it was perfect for me because I, I wanted something that wasn't going to just be spit out of a, a printer. Um, I wanted something that had those sort of like again back to that four color process where it's like you print the blacks, then you print the yellows, then you print the you know magenta, then you print the um, uh, the uh, the cyan, and and that sort of I wanted that sort of layered um, uh, sort of like off off kilter look to it um and risograph is perfect for that it's basically like a silkscreen photocopier yeah so how are you doing the artwork then is it a, 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 is it on traditional on board but then 
you're identifying the colors you want the printer to use or you yeah it's a, yeah exactly the same technique that I, I explained about the, the 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 mean girls club where it's sort of like ink on board for the for well gouache on board for the main art um, and then sort of these vellum layers and in the case of frog wife and pleasure planet um, the different layers were just um, different colors so you, you know you send a file to the the risograph printer and it's basically all these gray scales in the, in the in the main art and then you just designate which color layer you want um so the tricky part about doing it by hand is you're not really seeing what the colors are going to look like until it's printed and the yeah. big boxes arrive at your house and then you start to realize oh i really totally missed that <laughs> coloring that you know that face in or that costume or whatever the case is so you know there's errors but that just becomes part of the 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 comic you know mm -hmm. as as it as it was in the old days when you know there was printing errors and the you know the word the word flick for instance the l and the i would run together to say you know it would spell yeah, yeah, yeah. that sort of stuff so you know it just becomes part of it yeah, and that's okay. I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with the imperfection. I, I like the imperfections and that imperfections have sort of become part of um, the way I work. Well, it's interesting because you're a painter as opposed to being a graphic designer, you know, and a graphic designer, I think, would have a different, uh, not to say that graphic design doesn't play a big part in what you do. It certainly does. But, but you're coming from a painting perspective and painting perspective is always more open, I think, to chance and to accident and uh, because you never know where it's going to push your painting but um yeah exactly that's something I've, I've learned the hard way too i used to try to control things and get really frustrated with, with 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 stuff and and the more i let go and sort of let the 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 paint do its thing and also hang on to sort of like areas of the painting that like oh that was a first pass but actually that's done now you know what i mean um not go back and overwork it um not not try to sort of cover up things and just you know like i can always do that at the end so it's like the the less control i put on the painting i think the better the result's going to be mm -hmm. i have a huge problem with overpainting things that's my biggest sort of struggle oh. as an as an artist is the idea of like i gotta stop touching that area like yeah. you know um that came out wrong. That came, <laughs> that came out inappropriately. I gotta stop touching that area um, in a context of paintings. Um, and um, you know, I, I need to sort of like uh, I'm constantly sort of reminding myself to stop mm -hmm. and just let go and just you know. I always thought, you know, actually looking at your paintings, I always because I always felt they felt so spontaneous that overpainting wasn't you know, an, an issue for you that it felt very, it just feels very spontaneous. You know, it doesn't feel like you're the kind yeah. of, back well, thank you. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, I've, I've, I've let go of things more than in the past. So it, it probably does have that feel now. Um, but it's a constant, it's a constant invisible battle under the surface with me. Um, so yes, if it, if, if it looks like that, it's because I'm making a huge effort to, to, to have it, <laughs> have it look like I'm not making a huge effort. Yeah. Well, um, before we leave the risograph thing, the one question I had was, you know, all, a lot of most of the line work is in this beautiful cyan ink. Is that are you using black line in your original and then having them yes. overlay? Oh, I see. Yeah. So you identify. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. So it gives me the, the flexibility. Doing it black just gives me the flexibility to change it in Photoshop later on, just designate it as a different color. Oh, okay. Or black if I want to, but I, I generally sort of, yeah, sort of in the in the last few comics, I've really enjoyed sort of using color throughout and leaving the black out 
And if I need black for some reason, like for space or something, I'll just layer um, yellow, cyan, and the red that I'm using. And it just sort of creates a, a muddy, dark color, but it's all these beautiful colors mixed together. So it's it's not a pure black, but it's more of a sort of a, um, you know, um, a, a muddy rainbow of those beautiful colors. Yeah. So are you preparing the files in Photoshop then after yes. you, you scan them and you, okay. Yeah. yeah. Touch them up and, you know, catch any errors. And usually what I do is uh, I have been sort of like looking at them in terms of the layers to see if they're, I've missed anything. Um, so I can sort of catch a lot of things in, in Photoshop, but um, it's, it's, it's such a great, easy way to work. I just, I love the whole process. It's a little bit laborious, but you know, it's a, um, it's something that I can, I can do and not get frustrated with. And I'm not a big digital person. So, um, the fact that I can even prepare files in Photoshop, I'm just so proud of myself. <laughs> well, I just, I love the fact that you're not a big digital person and that's, oh man, I, yeah, I keep telling myself, oh, I'm going to learn animation or I'm going to do It's like, I never do. Cause it's like, I need the time to paint and draw. There's, it's already like the days are so fragmented that I don't even have enough time to, you know, sort of do the work that I want to do, let alone learn a program and and become a, you know, become a CGI artist or something like that. So no, I mean, well, not at this point, anyways. Speaking of speaking of CGI, but also speaking of of digital work and whatnot, um, I watched the Mean Girls video and which I quite enjoyed. Uh, the little film you did for the exhibition yeah. uh, of Mean Girls. I don't think a lot of people have seen that. It's really pretty cool, and and it's only five minutes long. Um, but you know what's what really blew my mind in it. In the center of it is all this clay animation, this claymation stuff. Yeah. Uh, and and that's your own. You did that. Yeah, yeah. And and going going back to nostalgia in our in our conversation, it's like the um, that was done for the 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 Wyden Kennedy show I mentioned, the Mean Girls yeah. Club. Uh, it was an installation, so it was a a full installation of the the clubhouse. Um, the, the comic was being sold at the show. There was prints that were being sold based on the comic. And then inside the clubhouse, there was, we, we set up, I wanted to do like sort of a projection booth mm -hmm. and do this sort of like mini movie trailer that basically you, you stick your head in the holes of the, 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 the clubhouse and inside your, your head is on a, you, you sort of poke your head through this like taxidermy plaque. So if there's someone looking at you from the other side, you're basically looking at a taxidermy head of <laughs> someone on the wall that's watching the installation so you're you're sort of all your all these heads are on these tax derby plaques on the inside watching this sort of installation this video of the of the mean girls club and that's where that movie came from uh the little short film but to get back to the sort of idea of nostalgia i wanted to create something for the show i had an opportunity to do the show that wasn't a painted show it wasn't paintings on the wall it was an installation so i really wanted to get back to that sort of love of like doing claymation and making comics and I, I really indulged my inner child when I when I did that show because I got to make these sort of the, the little goofy video with these sort of like stop motion sequences the sort of giant skeleton that sort of hovered over the house the the clubhouse that was all in stop motion um and then um and it was all shot on Super 8 film, by the way. So it's, there's a lot of sort of like double, ex, there's double exposure in the movie. Um, there's like stop motion. I brought this, bought this great German um, movie camera with, with uh, single frame capacity. Um, and it's all super old school. It's just like I would have made it if I was like 10 years old, you know, in 1980. It's, I, I did everything the way I would have done it back then. And I really, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. It looks like it was a lot of fun. And I, I really enjoyed that 
moment of uh, of claymation or stop motion that was in the center of it. And I love the the retro aesthetic and the the lighting of it. Everything about it, I thought, was wonderful. It called to are you are you a, a student of film at all? Um, do you know the films of Kenneth Anger? Uh, no, I don't. Yeah, it reminded me of, um, there's a, an early Kenneth Anger film. Uh, the name of it is escaping me right now. I should look it up. But um, he he did some really interesting independent film back in the day, uh, long before music video. And um, he did a, he did a, um, uh, it's, a it's a, like a biker film. And it was on 16 millimeter film, really cheap, used a, uh, a, you know, an early 60s rock or late 50s rock and roll soundtrack to it. Um, and it, it's a really great little film. And I can't remember the title of it. I'm going to look his work up. It sounds intriguing. Yeah. yeah. He, he was also, Kenneth Anger was, uh, uh, he was, he's most famous for writing a book about Hollywood um, because he was a Hollywood kid. And he okay. grew up in Hollywood and he knew all of these Hollywood secrets. And there's, there's a question as to the veracity of some of the book. Yeah. But who knows? Um, but his filmmaking was a different thing altogether. Um I'm looking him up online now. <laughs> oh, that's wild. Well, I can't wait to check his work out because I love the sort of the, you know, the idea of the, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but the auteur, you know, the. Yeah, yeah. Scorpio that Rising. That was, that was the first. Scorpio Rising. Okay. I've heard of that. Yeah. So yeah, I've definitely. It reminds me of that, that kind of independent filmmaking in a way, yeah. just in terms of not so much, you know, he was working from a gay perspective and he was looking at, um, you know, uh, particularly exploring the world of motorcycle gangs and whatnot. And, um, and you know, it, it had a whole vibe to it, but there's that kind of retro, low-tech feeling to the film and from, you know, a totally different perspective, but it's a really cool connection and i just wondered if you'd ever seen it but yeah no i haven't i think i was more uh, really i don't know if there was any sort of one single film or filmmaker that influenced me with that me girls club it was it, like i said was more getting in touch with my sort of like inner child and it's like well what would i wanted to do well i'd like a big like you know eyeball with tentacles and it was you know the the whole the whole five minutes is just a it's an it's so I don't even know if it holds together because there's so many different like sort of elements. There's like sort of footage I took of insects in the beginning and then it sort of leads into the stop motion world. And then it goes into the sort of the live action with, you know, my, yeah, my, um, my friends, my friends cast as the mean girls, you know, and stuff. And there's like stop motion, you know, Merkins and things. So it's like, it's a, it's a hot mess. I'm going to admit it. It's not, there's, there wasn't any kind of shooting script or anything, but it was, it was just, I think every scene sort of has an element of like the, joyfulness of making it i hope anyways you oh, know absolutely. from from shooting that from shooting the insects in a you know right down from my house in this little sort of pathway where all the flowers were blooming and you know that there's a a great piece of footage i got it's a little bit out of focus but it's a shot of like a ball of baby spiders that i i bumped I bumped the, the the leaf that they were all attached to and they all sort of exploded off of this ball into these like sort of like individual little baby spiders you know and it's like just i got these like i managed to get these great moments there's a moment of like an ant in a giant um i think that it's a giant peony or something like that so it just there was just so much so much fun and so much joy in in, in making it and then hanging out with friends and drinking beer while we're shooting the, the <laughs> live action stuff in the industrial zone down the street 
Um, you know, and it was it was a lot of fun. I, I was going to come back. One thing I was going to say was I was I was inspired by the work of Guy Madden. Are you familiar with Guy Madden's work? Guy Madden. Uh, gosh, I know the name and I know I should know it, but I don't. Yeah, he produced. Uh, he well, he directed and uh, produced tons of movies over the years. He's from Winnipeg, where where I'm from. Um, but like Tales from the Gimli Hospital, um, Archangel, uh, Saddest Music in the World with uh, Isabella Rossellini. Um, so yeah, he you know he's a fantastic. Just my favorite living independent filmmaker by far. He's just his work is is so great. Um, it's just it's got such a, a nice. I'm not going to over describe it because you really have to see it. And his movies are, are, you know, you can start with some that are on YouTube and stuff, but really, really big body of work. A lot of sort of like museum installations and, and, and uh, just fantastic stuff. Check his work out. I will and, indeed. And he, he, what's that? I will indeed. Absolutely. Yeah. His work has just always really been a, a strong influence on me along with David Lynch. Um, and I've had the good fortune to sort of get to know Guy a little bit just via email. I've never actually met him, but we've, we've corresponded and he's become sort of a, a fan of my work, which is to me the, the biggest possible achievement that, that I think one can have as an artist is when your, your, your art idols um, start to enjoy your own work. You know, um, that is just such a, a huge thing for me. But anyways, Guy Madden's work was just um it, it's raw and it's it's just it's so funny and it's so dark and it's it's just it's got all the it, it checks all the boxes for me so that was a that was a very big um, influence on uh, on that little piece of film that i uh, churned out on that recommendation i absolutely have to check it out yeah yeah well it, the the love of uh, you know of making that film really comes across i don't know if that's uh, a, a medium that you will continue to explore, but uh, you certainly, I, I really enjoyed that. It made me think too, you know, speaking of the insects and the spiders and whatnot, as we were talking, I was thinking, boy, it'd be really cool to see you do some kind of, you know, monster movie along the lines of of them or one of those great 50. Oh man, it'd <laughs> be and, such a, yeah. oh, it'd be a dream for me. You know, when I was, when I was a kid, I was like planning way beyond my means, but I was already like sort of designing on paper these like sort of, how could I create like a giant insect or something, you know, like the way they did with them, the sort of the full, the full size yeah. monsters that someone climbed inside and operated with sticks and pulleys and things like that. Oh and God. I just thought like, how can I do this? And of course I never got around to it. It was way beyond my, my sort of abilities, but you know, if, if I was going to make something and I've, you know, I've, I've been approached by people in show business not 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 a lot, but there's been a little there's been some interest. There's been some some um, conversations and stuff. And it's like I always I, I feel like if, I, if, if my work was going to be made into something that was uh, motion. And I'm, I think I think live action versus animation um, that it would have to have that low tech quality to it. Maybe no CGI or maybe very little and everything else would be done with like, you know, uh, latex masks or stop motion or, or that sort of thing. I think that would, I would love to see that, that to me would be a, 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 a big accomplishment is to see a return of that sort of low tech campy um, form of, of, of filmmaking. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I mean, I think this is the, the beauty of low tech in this age of hyper technology, right? And, mm -hmm. and you know, the, I mean, low tech itself is an aesthetic, the DIY aesthetic, aesthetic. you know, it, it seems like a natural for you. And, and also, uh, you know, the wonders of it, the one for me, you know, like one of the, the terrible things they do in um, in 
Marvel movies or those or a lot of contemporary films that they use CGI, particularly in superhero movies, which I really can't stand. Um, there's this idea of using it to convince you that the Hulk is real and this battle is real and all of this stuff mm. is, is really happening before your eyes. And there's a certain magic trick to that, right? That yeah, people course. enjoy. But for me, it's always the stuff that doesn't look real where the magic is. You know, I love puppet stuff in film because I love to see the strings. You know, I love the uh, the Gary Jerry Anderson stuff from back in the 60s. Uh, I love all that stuff because I, I love the 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 lack of artifice about it. Yeah, I see the strings. It's great. Isn't it great that these puppets are moving and talking? And, <laughs> you know, I love that stuff because it because it's not it's it's artifice because it's art you know and, yeah. and it's this world of art and uh and like you know whether we're talking about early stop uh, motion stuff ray harryhausen stuff i was just gonna sidetrack you onto ray harryhausen so let's get yeah. back to that because i love yeah ray. yeah sure you know yeah. i love ray harryhausen stuff yeah and it's the sculptural so, quality of his stuff you know yeah that oh absolutely yeah you know the move the type of movement the stylized harryhausen movement and the matting of you know the awkward kind of matting which was miraculous for the time but looking yeah. at it now you know uh, of the the foreground elements the background elements oh yeah it's just you can see you can it, it's it's far from seamless but it's so beautiful it's so beautiful and it's like harryhausen instilled himself like his soul into everything that he did like yeah. and it's all him I don't know. He must have had some assistance, but it sounds like he really animated everything himself. He, yeah, at least I, in the at least in the early films. Oh, I think yeah, I I think almost in almost every sequence. And built was, the models. And built the mo and the models, and, man. And and did all the mat work and everything. It's just it's mind blowing. And I was gonna bring up Harryhausen because. Um, you're mentioning that sort of idea of like the sort of seeing the strings and the textures and that. And, and Ray Harryhausen, I'm going to butcher his his quote, but to sort of, you know, the the general idea that I, I read this, or I think I was watching an interview um, with him. Either way, he said something to the effect of of like um, he was he was referring to sort of like the the modern special effects, which I think was he was still alive when CGI was sort of coming of age so he was sort of referring to that and talking about how the sort of this the cgi there's, there's sort of the, a loss of that um that dream quality that something that's animated by hand even though it's not perfect and it's it's clunky and stuff it has a it has a dream quality it has a sort of a, a personality to it that the cgi stuff it, it gets um totally um sterilized yes and that was sort of, you know, he put it much better that, I, like I said, I'm butchering it, but that was this sort of idea of, of like uh, his philosophy of like creating it yourself, animating it yourself, doing everything by hand and actually having a physical piece that you're working with. Um, there's sort of a, a, a magic dreamlike quality that comes with that. That's impossible to get with with CGI. I think it's also physics, too, where it's like there's a weight. There's a, a weight of the object in the in the CGI movies with the Hulk. The Hulk looks like he weighs about like as much of a, as a balloon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? At least in the early Hulks that I've seen, I've sort of stopped watching them. But the 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 first Hulk movie that came out, I remember just thinking, it's like, oh, the Hulk is weightless. Like <laughs> there's sort of a there's there's no there's no sort of sense of like weight even if they try to do the shaking ground effects and stuff like that it never convinced me whereas like something like yimmer from like you know 20 million miles to earth is like um 
it has a weight it has a shadow it's you know there's a there's it's it's there you can you know it's there so i don't know there's that sort of dreamlike quality that that i that i love and um you know the idea of, of dreams also is just sort of sort of something that i sort of really like to launch my my work off of so anything that sort of has that sort of dreamy uh weird quality to it like like harryhausen's work i think it just you know, I like it first and then it takes me decades to figure out what it is that I exactly enjoy about it. And that is, you know, when you're talking about that sort of physical elements of of things, the strings, the, the you know, the flaws, the sort of sometimes you see a hand come into the scene or something like that. It's like I just I love it all. Absolutely. The, the physicality of it and the imperfection of it is what makes it you know, so vital and so human. And, you know, one of the things I always used to say to students was, you know, it's we aspire for the for perfection, but perfection is really a sterile kind of condition. It's imperfection that's interesting, and it's in the imperfections in artwork, the eccentricities, if you will. They're not imperfections. The, you know, the artist may see them as imperfections or whatnot, but they're not. They're, they're marks of the personality. They're marks of the human being. And you see that in Harryhausen stuff and you see it in anything that where in the human hand is really more evident and more more prevalent. And that's why the, one of the reasons I love traditional 2D animation as opposed to, you know, CGI or, or you know, the contemporary vogue for CGI. I'll still go back to hand-drawn animation, Richard Williams stuff or whatever is okay. the most beautiful stuff because, you know, there is that quality of life and individuality. Uh, the individual artist, you know, that makes it come alive in a way that's not, it's just not evident in computer well, And also the, the limitations of the medium become um, a medium in itself, if that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, so, so there's a beauty of having like, a, you know, um, a, a, a piece of paper with a, a pencil is your sort of, that's your, that's your animating tool or your, your celluloid with, um, you know, six colors or something like that. It's like, what can you do with that? Like with CGI, it's like, it's like the world is unlimited and therefore it's too much. There's too much choice. There's too much like, you know, you know what I mean? You can't, it's, it's too hard to rein in and it's too hard to control because there's so much choice. So it becomes sort of a, a, a mess. It becomes, it becomes overly complicated and the whole message gets lost in it. But I think if you're down to like, sort of like, I use a really limited palette. Like when I mix paints, it's generally sort of like three to four main colors and then sort of variations within those colors. And I love the limited palette because it's like, I have to work my best within that sort of limitation, you know? Yeah, and um, I can't imagine. Otherwise, it just—I think it would just be a—you know—it would—it would get muddy. The things would get lost. I would—I would lose my way. It's very easy for me to lose my way in a painting or a comic, unless I'm sort of really keeping it down to like a few tools in the toolbox. Too many choices, and and it becomes confused. But by you know, and I'm, I'm thinking of when we think of a, of limited limiting your choices as, as an artist, you know, a lot of great art is made that way, you know, whether you're talking about a minimalist language, you know, and Donald Judd says he's going to work this way, or, you know, Mark Rothko decides to make paintings that are all these horizontal rectangles, you know, over yep. and over the course of his life. Um, by limiting those choices, he opened up a world of possibilities. And, you know, so I think, you know, given sort of the, the nature of your imagery, which is wide ranging, right? Um, and and it really makes sense to sort of rein in on some other area in order to simplify another area in order to to enable you to investigate these other ideas.
Yeah, I have to, or I'd literally actually go insane. Like I would just head my head would explode. It would be too. It would be too overwhelming. Um, and it perfectly for, lends itself in the risograph work, right? Or in Mean Girls, you know, in the comic work. The use of yeah, the oh, absolutely. And and again, it's sort of the limitation, but also that that physicality that we're talking about. I mean, I love, I, I, I you know, anyone who wants to do digital comics, I'm all for it. I think it's a great medium. I think it's, you know, wide, you can reach a wide audience. There's followers, there's people on Instagram with a million followers that do these um, web comics, but for me, that was it was not my path. I needed to have something physical in my hand. I wanted that sort of ink and and paper and staples, and, and that was a big part of it for me. I mean, I, I you know, it it's kind of a almost a, a, a bit of a shallow way to think about it, but it's like sort of working from like, oh, I want an object first, and then I'll figure out the story afterwards. <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely, sure. Yeah, sure. so it's like you know, an object for object's sake. It's like I want to produce a golden age comic. I want my own golden age comic. I don't care what it is, but it's going to be something that's golden age and it's going to have paper and staples and ink. And that's you know, and then sort of working backwards from from that, you know, it's like it's that's sort of a different different kind of path, a different kind of creative path, but that's sort of almost my my sort of starting point well you uh, know i i, I completely i sympathize with it completely um you know and and i and when i look at pleasure planet or frog wife or mean girls club the the they're not the traditional six by nine comics we're talking about a different um scale and the scale is a very natural it's got a, it's got a you know six by nine comics have always felt too vertically oriented to me mm -hmm. to be really pleasing and the, the golden age yeah. comics have a more you know, balanced, I think, um, scale to them. And these partake of that, if you will. Yeah, well, honestly, I'm just working off the 11 by 17 standard format that is folded in half. And it's like, how big can we go with that? There's a trim size, there's like a quarter inch trim. But it's like that, that, that that's a format that I don't, it's not custom, that, that is a standard format. So just fold that in half. And boom, you've got this beautiful you know kind of fat golden age proportion book so um yeah it was sort of a, a no-brainer i wasn't about to customize and try to reinvent the wheel or anything but that's just sort of you know that that's what's out there and it and it worked beautifully it does work beautifully so let's um you know let's talk a little bit about batman <laughs> I knew that I knew that had to come up. I was going to bring it up if you didn't, but let's yes, let's, <laughs> let's let's go there. Let's go there. Let's, let's talk about Batman, man. So you love Batman, and Batman loves you. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I don't know if it's totally reciprocal, but yes, I'm 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 a lifelong uh, Batman fan for sure. Yeah, and so in the back of this wonderful little bat zine, we've got Bat Book by Ryan Hashka. Must have been about nine ten years old when he did that. yeah somewhere in the late 70s for sure there's uh yeah yeah I, I was it was important for me to include those in there because um well first of all three is just a nice way to break up you know sort of sections of three is a is a magic number in art so it's like sort of my my current day batman uh my collection of batman foreign comics and then you've got sort of my my childhood take on batman as well so but yeah no i i used to draw batman a lot when i was a kid and that was Again, it's a character that sort of never left me again. It's sort of like the Frank R. Paul, you know, idea of like, oh, that's that's here to stay, like until I'm buried. You know, that's, what was that's your not first me. your first experience of Batman. Um, I can't exactly remember, but I'm going to say the Adam West series mm -hmm. um, that was rerun after school. I think that was sort of a religious sort of. Uh, 
daily ritual for me was coming home and watching uh watching batman on one of the three channels that we uh, that we had <laughs> and just loving loving that show and then also sort of buying batman comics off the newsstands like off the spinner racks um so it was sort of a combo i don't know exactly what came first but there was those things i'm pretty sure it was the show because then i remember like really wanting the sort of the corgi batmobile you know the sort of the it's about five inches long and it shot the little red rockets out of the tubes in the back and stuff um had sort of a little pizza cutter thing in the front that you push a button and it chops and stuff like that this was beautiful die cast sort of um batmobile um and then somewhere along there i discovered that oh batman isn't from like my era batman is like an old like there's old bat there's old timey batman without robin and stuff like that so then i started to really dive as deep as i could into the sort of the history of Batman and realized that, oh, Batman wasn't always like a sort of a dorky, you know, chubby Adam West hero. He was like, he, he was, he carried a pistol. Yeah. You know, he strangled villains with his bat rope. <laughs> yeah. Like he, he mowed down, he mowed down like monsters with his like machine gun mounted to his bat plane. That's, that's the Batman that I really got into when I discovered that. He's the Dark Knight, man. But the well, Dark Knight, well, yeah, it was, yeah, I, I, I was. That's that's the sort of the Batman that I dig. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm I'm riffing kind of on on my first experience of Batman was the Adam West show, but it, it was prior to the Adam West sh- the show actually being. I was six in 1966, so my consciousness Perfect. was really just kind of forming. And I before that show premiered, there were advertisements that ran on television and those advertisements were from the first episode and they showed Frank Gorshin in an elephant mask, you know, and a, uh, or an elephant gas mask. Um, and they showed this exploding elephant and they showed Batman also, you know, wearing a mask on uh, a gas mask on top of his mask and speaking in this muffled voice. And I thought this was the weirdest. And I still when I. <laughs> Think back to that image. There was this otherworldly weirdness about this guy in this yeah. suit, you know, jumping through a window or whatever he was doing, um, yeah. his cape flailing around. And there is there no version of Batman has ever touched on how weird that I felt that image was. <laughs> and it clearly it clearly impacted you. It did, and I'll tell you something. That, and I, I'm not saying this because I'm a fan of your work or anything. I don't mean to brown nose you, but I'm telling you, the weirdness in that image is in your paintings of Batman. Wow, that's that's it's, huge. It is this really weird, otherworldly, and a, a surreal. Batman was surreal in that moment to me at six years old. Yes. And he's never been. He's been, you know, serious. He's been the Dark Knight. He's been vengeful. He's been you know, a guy with a gun. He's been Neil Adams, Batman. He's been Frank Miller's Batman. He's been all these other Batmans, man. But the weird, surreal figure of that commercial, I, I've never encountered again until I saw him in your painting. That and, makes me incredibly happy that you that you said that and that you sort of see that in, in the work. I think that, um, yeah, I, I, I'm coming at it from a totally different point of view, but I, I, I think I really, when, when I do Batman, and Batman, by the way, is sort of the only real pop culture figure that I 
revisit again and again you know like i've done commissions for people of comic covers and um you know a recent sort of like um, stardust commission stuff like that but the batman is something that i revisit for myself and it's something that i keep sort of filtering through filtering through and sort of getting a little bit weirder and a little bit more off every time as in as, as if it's like a bootleg of a bootleg of a bootleg of a dc comic yeah 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 uh, or a bootleg of the of the adam west show so yeah so i sort of um I think I sort of revisit the the Batman character it, through that lens and sort of look at it like, you know, how did I think unconsciously I'm sort of doing that sort of like how did Batman make me feel as a kid? What was my excitement in the character? What was the sort of discovery? What was the sort of the sense of oddness? Because it is it's he's a really it's a really odd iconic character that's been you know reinvented so many times in so many different ways which is kind of the fascination of it as well the fact that you can take this sort of single character and reinvent it so many times mm -hmm. and still have it sort of stand up and 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 we know it's batman even though it's like totally different you know approach um and um yeah no i i really i i think you kind of nailed that that feeling that i'm sort of going for because i i don't really have a lot of interest in just painting batman just for batman's sake right. i want to sort of like you know put him in high heels or put him in a yellow sort of jumper or make his, you know, in the, 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 the latest one I did Batman versus the bog mummy is sort of like make the inside of his cape red. And then actually make the cape into bat wings, the way sort of that they presented it in the sort of early Bob Kane uh, uh -huh. comics where it's sort of like, it's a cape, but then sometimes when he's in the air, it sort of folds out to these bat wings, which was utterly impossible, but somehow it still worked in the comics, you know, it was this beautiful silhouette of this, like, large bat um so you know sort of continually sort of revisiting it's like oh i want oh, this i want batman to have sexy meaty legs you know like in, in another painting or something so everything's a little bit different and it's just always sort of pushing these different variations of batman and then also sort of a, a, a new language that i'm trying to sort of interject my own love of the character you know each each painting each iteration of batman is sort of a, a, a love letter to the character which is absurd to say but it's that's sort of what it what it becomes oh that comes i mean definitely comes across even when you've got batman in high heels and stockings you know um, yeah he, i mean he he would be a fetishist wouldn't he <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly i mean he really would be uh and robin and robin would be there to watch i guess i mean i, I guess don't <laughs> you know i mean I don't, I don't want to deal with anything that's age inappropriate you know in regard to robin yeah. i mean you know no. uh, we could go there, but, but, but <laughs> you know, let's not. Yeah, but but nevertheless, Bat Batman is like, um, you know, he he would be he would be kinky, right? I mean, yeah. the, this is a guy who's wearing this weird costume and running around in a cape and a cowl, and you know, and he probably has a sexual thing for it. I mean, it's kind of, <laughs> it's really strange. There's, there's endless possibilities there um and that, that is i think that's again that's the sort of the beauty of the characters it kind of conjures these sort of different things um in different people and um there's a there's a, a sense of wonder to that that's just yeah. built the character you know and there's this woman with long red hair i'm looking at the zine now and there's this woman with long red hair and a bat cowl and she's got a bat necklace you know a pendant uh hanging off her neck and you know she's yeah. definitely a, m a member of the bat cult you know yes exactly yeah there's so yeah there's that man 
it, it sort of starts to yeah exactly it sort of starts to sort of spread out a little bit there's the the, the cover of fatales the monograph has got the the sort of the girl wearing the the bat it's almost like a batman logo with eye holes cut out of it you know yeah um, so there's that sort of like idea of like yeah that there's a there's a cult there's a cult that exists in my world that is dedicated to batman yeah and they meet in these really dark strange places at night and you know, it's got and and who knows, you know, what's going on in these these cults. It reminds me of a Stanley Kubrick movie or you know, <laughs> something like that. But, you know, it, it's, it's not totally wholesome. No, it's not wholesome. It's it's, <laughs> it's you know, have you ever read The Dark Side of Camelot? No, there is. in OK, so it's, it's The Dark Side of Camelot is about, you know, speaking of optimism turned on its head it's the kennedy you know camelot but it's yeah camelot so so and it talks about his sexual proclivity and in there there's a description and i may be remembering this incorrectly but there's this description of photographs that the secret service had or they they you know had had uh, absconded with or something of kennedy among all of these people where all of these people at an orgy wearing masks and kennedy is among them and it's like it gives me like this really creepy <laughs> feeling you know um and and when they describe that that picture and um of this world that you know you know this surface world but then there's this other world yeah Batman yeah. definitely belongs to this other world you know what a great idea for a bootleg risograph comic yeah <laughs> you know right there that's a great that's a great pitch well i'm waiting to um, see it man <laughs> um i've thought about doing it i'm not i'm, I'm sort of trying to figure out the legalities of yeah. doing a, a a batman or a bat person bootleg comic and and the thing is i don't want to put in all the work and then have it squashed legally you know what i mean but I at the same time it's like what's up I was, I'm sorry, I, at the same time, right, you, you were going to say, go ahead. No, at the same time, it's like, I really, it's something I really want to visit at some point, you know, um, in some form. If you do it, I think if you do it without money attached to it, for no money, and you don't ever want any money, and you, I think there's a way of doing it. Yeah, there's, I'd like some money. <laughs> I know, right? I know. It, if you're going to put that kind of work into it. Because I'm going to put a lot of effort into it. Let's put it this way. If I'm, if I'm doing a Batman bootleg, it's going to be like the best Batman bootleg I could possibly do. Yeah. And I'm going to put some time into it. So that's the thing is like I wanted to get out there. I wanted to sort of like to make some money back on it. But uh, it's comics. If you are listening, right, no. <laughs> this is this would be the ultimate Batman comic. Oh, I would love to do it above board. But yeah, it's like, I don't know. Like I've, I've talked to sort of uh, I, I well, Chip, you know, Chip Kidd, the, the, yeah. the Batman. Yeah. The Batman collector, the, the brilliant graphic designer. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we've we've spoken a few times and, and I've met with with Chip. Chip's such a great guy and such an influence and uh, ins- inspiration to my own body of work. But um we 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 talked about the idea of of doing some sort of Batman bootleg thing, and and I mean it would be a dream to to collaborate um, on some level with Chip on any Batman project, but I'm the the legalities kind of freak me out a little bit, so yeah. that's something that I have to look into before I start anything. You know, it reminds me of um, Joe Staten was on the show a couple a while ago, and he told me what one of the ways he ended up doing the Dick Tracy comic strip was that he and his writer, uh, the writer's name escapes me at the moment, um, did, worked on a, a, a Dick Tracy comic of their own, and they put it out there online. And, if, and you know, apparently 
the Tribune syndicate will stomp on some people, but they really didn't really didn't make an effort. And so Staten's comic was out there and eventually somebody came across it and offered them the job Dick, doing Dick Tracy. But that's a moment, an, an example, of, you know, a rare example of a lack of litigiousness, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think with, with you know, DC, DC even more than whatever the Dick Tracy, the, the what is it, United Features or whatever. Chicago Tribune. Yeah. Chicago Tribune, you know, even even more so that the, the firepower behind oh, yeah, DC and Warner Brothers is like, I don't really want to, you know, not that I'm worried about getting sued and, and losing things, but it's more like getting the work squashed and just losing that that time um, and then not having the work be out there so anyways I had, but i can you know at the at the at the moment i'm you know sort of just enjoying doing this sort of like you know fan uh, fan art pieces of uh of batman and just revisiting the the sort of the oddness of the of the character it's so perfect for you and it's really become something very different in your hands and um you know and obviously a language of the batman language you know um is something that is it, it's 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 it feels so natural to to your language the world you explore in your comics it's it's probably because i grew up like the the batman language is so ingrained in me that it's like you know it's nothing that i'm inventing but rather drawing from those sort of early um batman comics and the, the tv show and stuff so it it, it definitely it, it probably should be seamless because i've been you know um absorbing batman in multiple forms for 50 years now so it's like you know it's right. it's not not too surprising that it, that it's sort of a a, a, a natural flow um it's so perfect that you know that it's not superman and it's not spider-man and it's not the hulk it's not any of those others it's the Batman. yeah yeah no it's you, know? you don't you don't trade off on you're not doing crossovers you're not you're just, it's the there's no boba fat there's no no it's 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 just <laughs> it's just no like you know and it comes down to me being very um wanting to be in control of my work and my my uh my own language my own personal language of, of art and comics and painting um i don't i don't want to be known as the star wars guy or the marvel guy or the you know that other people can do that they can do that better than me but i, I i've always been very focused on uh original content and dipping into batman for me is 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 a guilty pleasure because um i just don't want to be known as that like oh that's the batman guy you know what i mean like i i want to be known for my own work and the guy that does my own that the the, the person that does his own work but also does a really weird batman you know, on the side kind of thing. So I think uh, you've succeeded. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. But it's always been really important for me to sort of uh, develop my own voice, leave the inspirations um, sort of on the table and then come to my own work with um, sort of those those things um, in in the toolbox, but not not on the surface. You know what I mean? Well, I do. And I think you ha I, this is one of the things I most admire about your your achievement is exactly that is that you know batman doesn't feel like the corporate character being you know at all it feels like a natural part of the, the world of ryan heshka that in the world of which you've created you know the world of ryan heshka has has this visual language and within that visual language you know we find all kinds of things you know we find pulp heroes and we find robots and we find you know mean girls club and we find you know all kinds of stuff among those things happens to be 
this other character, the Batman, who fits yeah. perfectly within that world. And then start to cross over my world, like the bog mummy into, you know, back into sort of it's, it's feeding off, feeding off itself and each other and, yeah. uh, and then all the other inspirations uh, as well. So I didn't know bog mummies were an actual thing until just last year when I found out that, oh, like there's such a thing as bog mummies, these like people that were buried <laughs> in the bogs and the peat, the peat, the, the, the acidity of the bogs preserved their, their skin and their flesh. So they're not you know, they're, they're not skeletized. They're actually mummified in this natural, wow. in this natural way. And it's like, oh my God, what a great adversary slash love interest for Batman. You know, and I immediately after this visit to this local bog with my daughter, where I learned about the bog mummies, um, I went home and I started sketching ideas for the bog mummy, you know, <laughs> and, and then I sort of thought, well, yeah, the bog mummy should probably be carrying an unconscious Batman a way to an underground sort of grave where she can sort of have her way with him or, you know, uh -huh. or marry him or something, do something, you know, but there's some sort of like, you know, kind of that Gothic idea, like the, the, the monk in the early detective comics, you know, I love that sort of idea of, of the Gothic villain, but then combine the Gothic villain with a, a dead version of the Catwoman. you know what I mean? Like, and yeah. sort of up with these, these, these mashups that work, and then it all works as a pulp cover. You know, that's sort of the, the idea is like, how can I sell this as a pulp cover? The pulp, the Batman pulp that was never, ever produced that should have been produced in 1940, you know? And and as you can tell, I get very excited about these. Sort of, yeah, um, yeah, no, absolutely. It's great. It's really great. I get excited about these sort of ideas. And, and, um, and you know, uh, I think when I feel that level of excitement, that's when I know that something is going to come across as organic, natural, and joyful. Mm -hmm. um, which is which is how the I don't know if you know the Batman Bog Mummy painting that I'm talking about. Yes, of course I do. Yeah. Okay. So that's a very recent uh, piece that I did. It was a, it was a personal piece, um, but it it was something that I, I I did this. I came home. I did the sketches after the bog, and then I just started painting it. There was no sort of preparatory like studies or or um, or or sort of tight sketches. I just sort of went for it, and um, I th I think if I can sort of when I'm when I'm sort of limiting the amount of distance from my brain to the canvas or to the comic book or to the art, you know, to whatever the surface is, um, that limiting that, that amount of time and space between those two things to me is what's going to produce the, the ultimate work. You know what I mean? The, the ultimate, um, in, in terms of like the, the best possible, um, spontaneous, joyful, um, expression. And absolutely, you know, uh, I think it, that particular painting is it works so well um, that that combination of, of you know, um, what's the word I'm, I'm looking for that the synergy of all of those things coming together and and the serendipity of going to see, you know, the bog with your daughter and learning about the bog. It all came together perfectly in that painting. It's just that painting, I think, is one of the best so far. Oh, well, thank you. It doesn't doesn't always happen that way, but uh, sometimes you got to dig a little deeper. But, you know, that was that's why I bring that painting up, though, is it's oh, one of those instances where as a as an artist and as a creator, I think you you long for those moments where everything just sort of falls. All the pieces fall on the, on the table in the right way, generally, you know, and there's not much to do other than just to take that and interpret that um, as a, a finished piece and do the best sort of direct, you know, interpretation um, that you can. Um, I wanted to mention, and this is still on the Batman topic, but I, I, I want to 
full confession, I have dreams about Batman comics that I find um, at, at junk stores or under like, you know, piles of books or things like that. I, I have these these dreams of like lost, hidden, um, unpublished Batman comics. And that actually drives a lot of my own Batman art um, is this sort of weird, you know, subconscious obsession that that doesn't even while sleeping I'm, these things are sort of like bubbling to the surface um and and that that actually has been driving a lot of not only the batman work but my own artwork as well as these sort of like dreams that i have of finding these publications that never existed i, I dream about magazines i dream about pulps <laughs> i dream about comics i dream about like pre-hero marvel monster comics from the early 60s that I find that are like, oh, this is, I haven't seen this one before. And it's because it doesn't exist. And it's like, when I wake up from a dream like that, I, I, I run to the, you know, I run to my sketchbook and I draw it and I write it down and I describe it as best I can so that I lock that, that dream in. And sometimes I use them and sometimes I don't, but um, I have a sort of an informal journal of dreams that runs through my, my sketchbooks throughout the years of these crazy, weird publications that i find in in my dreams that's really really interesting the law the great lost batman comics the great lost marvel comics the the comics that that never were but should have been or the comics from another reality or you know maybe you're touching into that reality that other you know there's these ideas of different threads of realities and these different ideas about dreams as being yeah you know uh, places wherein we're crossing over into a different world and maybe you're doing that you know yeah i mean maybe these weird mexican publications that i dream about you know these sort of batman foreign editions like exist out there somewhere and but not in our dimension not in our time frame i don't know it's really it's it's so vivid though that i i i'm always drawing on these sort of like you know mining mining these dreams that i have because it's like there's a vividness um to them that if I can translate that, I think it's going to be something hasn't been seen in, in some, you know, in some degree. Obviously, it's hard to come up with any, nothing's new under the sun anymore kind of thing, all that kind of, you know. But to be as sort of original as I can and sort of drawing on these sort of gifted images in, in, in my dreams that it's like, well, I'll take that, you know, that's not plagiarizing anyone and it's totally bizarre. Um, so it's something that I feel like, oh, I can own these, these images that are popping up, but you know, obviously not every night is like that. There's a lot of, you know, wasted dream time, but, um, but, uh, and it's just, yeah, it's something that it's sort of, I, I, that world of dreams literally is like a, a very big source of, uh, of inspiration. Well, you, you know, I mean, it strikes me as a great, you know, title for a book or something, Ryan Heschke travels to the other side. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's an idea for an art show at some point yeah, to actually yeah, like sort of execute all of these, you know, or a comic. It'd be a really fun anthology to sort of take these different comic yeah. dreams that I've had and uh, and just mash them into some bizarre non-linear comic. You know, there's uh, so much there's potential out there. I'm, I'm not sure how to harness it yet, but well, you know, it's it's interesting because your 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 whole world of images feels like that trip to the other side and that you come back and brought this knowledge with you and and it's of a world that we can feel but can't touch or see 
Yeah, it's interesting. I've just, yeah, I've never, you know, I've never been a big believer in that kind of stuff or really delved into it. It's not that I don't believe it, but but as a whole throughout my life, I've never really been a big like, oh, there's the, you know, another alternate dimension or life after death or that sort of thing. But I, I think as I get older, it's like I start to sort of believe that there's got to be something that we don't understand and can't define but there's something there's there's a, a you know there's a, a, a force a unit a force of the universe and and it's like what are we what are we as artists what are we tapping into there's we're tapping into something we, we probably don't know what it is um but you know it's trying to get to that like how how far can we go you know mm-hmm. yeah I, I mean we're limited by our senses and our intellect but there is something in our society. Yeah, exactly. And we, but in our context, exactly. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're kind of fenced in by that, but if we let go of that in you and certainly other cultures have done this, where you, you know, allow yourself the ability to imagine, to reach, you know, um, I think you can tap into some, something that, you know, is there, but again, it's not on the surface. It's, it's just below it. Yeah, but it's like our our culture, our Western culture wants to squash that in every sense of the word, like like not just now, but I mean, like, you know, like you mentioned other cultures, um, you know, considered savage, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, whenever the, you know, whenever colonialism discovered a new, you know, civilization, not a new civilization, but a but an uncovered civilization and an undiscovered civilization. You know, it's like, well, we have to baptize them and put them in yeah. pants. You know what I mean? Exactly. And it's like, wow, like if we really could as individuals like unwind that, I think that we would open ourselves up to things. People are doing it. And I, that's what I do believe in. I, I don't believe in a specific sort of like heaven, hell, fourth dimension, sixth dimension kind of thing. But there's that idea of like just the the untapped potential you know which is nothing new but it's new to me it's new for me to sort of like get it you know mm-hmm. that 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 kind of excites me well you know it's one of the I, I think it's one of those things that comes with age right is this this un, this feeling you become aware of your own mortality and as you become aware of your own mortality you just become more open to the idea that there's something more that than this existence that we aren't aware of or there's more to this existence than we have the capability of of seeing or touching and yeah ideally you do i think it doesn't happen for most people and i think that's why we're sort of locked into a um a, a broken system yeah well to put, it, know, to put it simply but i mean other people have put forth the idea that artists are shamans you know and mm-hmm. and yes and no i mean but there is a certain kind of experience of the world that an artist or you know artists in, of all kinds whatever medium you know and yeah. not just artists, but others, but there's a certain kind mm-hmm. of empathy, you know, to the world that comes with the investigation of the world that, that goes hand in hand with making art. And yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think that makes us open to those thoughts and those experiences and those possibilities, the possibility of, of touching upon a comic book from another world in a dream and bringing that back in, 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 into this world. Um, that kind of thing is a magical, you know, thing. It's a magical experience, and it's a it's a rare experience. And um, and you know, if you're privy to that, then you have the obligation, really, you know, to introduce it into this world. And 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautifully said. You have a really, you have a real way with words, Jeff. I think that <laughs> that is, that is, uh, I, I'm going to write down whatever you just said. I hope it's in the podcast so I can actually write it down and put a post-it on my, on my bulletin board and remind myself that. Cause I think that's, I, I'm not joking here. I'm not being, I, I, I'm very serious that I think that is, we, you know, not, and not to be sort of preacher or anything like that, but we just need to remind ourselves of those sort of, those sort of, um, you know, those sort of those points, those things that we can sort of touch on day to day. And especially as artists, we're, we're gifted with with creativity. And it's 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 a frustrating it's a hell of a frustrating way to make a living sometimes. But you know what? It's it's like it's gotten me through some some times and it, and it continues to be sort of um, at this point in time, I keep reminding myself almost daily at this point. It's like, yeah, it's really tough and it's frustrating. And FedEx lost my artwork and blah, blah, blah. But like, what a what a gift you can give yourself to just let go into this sort of creative world and do something that's entirely for yourself. And also other people can benefit from it. Yeah, I mean, and by doing, by reaching deep enough into yourself, you're doing something for others. There's an additive, it's an additive quality to the world as opposed to a subtractive extractive quality. We and it's not, like just tipping that, just tip that balance a little bit in that favor or a lot in that favor. And maybe we can start to turn things around. Yeah, I hope so. That sounds very lofty and 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 probably, you know, way beyond anything that I, you know, obviously it's not a, it's not a personal thing. This is like a collective thing, but it's like, I, I believe in it. I believe in it. Maybe it's naive to believe that that can happen, but you have to okay. believe in it. I, I I believe that as artists we endeavor to bring something more than something that that contrasts against the hate in the world. You know? Yeah, we don't have to proselytize. We don't have to make social statements and make big. You know? We don't have to do polit- pol- politicking. You know. Yeah. But, but I think we we as artists in in the sense of trying to bring something into the world that, however small, benefits people. Whether it's just to make them laugh or it's to make them contemplate more deeply you know i think it it's to con it's to counter those voices that are trying to bring hate and and you know uh, all of those terrible things that we see on the rise elsewhere well it's the only thing we can control yeah exactly you know we can't control the 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 war in the ukraine we can't control the sort of the the situation in Iran. I mean, we, we can, we can protest and we can post and we can like do, you know, try to use our voices for that. But I mean, at the end of the day, the only thing that we really have control over is that sort of um, our, our own sort of uh, creative voice. So how do you, how do you use that, you know? Yep. And choose to use it in, you know, in the, in the best way, you know, and in, in, case it's it's reaching into this dream world that's within you and bringing it out and and i think on that note you know maybe we'll we will uh bring this to a close so you can get back to painting yeah well that's a great great place to close but um thank you so much for for having me be a part of this especially since i'm not a traditional comic artist in the sense of you know a career comic artist um so it's a it's an unusual I feel an unusual choice, but hopefully it, it, it fits into your um, sort of your your uh, your the library that you're building. Of well, these you know, fantastic shows. Well, thanks, man. I, I you know, I'm 
I come from a fine art background, comics to fine art, sort of a similar trajectory in a way to yours. I, you know, I come from, I loved comics and comics were my thing and that was my school. And then I went to art school and I went off into painting and all kinds of, so, so I came out of a fine art thing back into comics. And so your world is, uh, is, you know, natural to me. And I'm really glad to be able to bring it into the podcast because, you know, the broader world of art and the broader world of comics, you know, is of all of it's interesting to me. This started off as a, a small podcast about Charles Schultz and Peanuts, and then it just mm-hmm. became something much more. And um, and that's, you know, I think he would have been happy with that. And I'm happy with that. And uh, because it's great to me to be able to bring somebody like you here who crosses boundaries and shows that there's no division between them, that, that you know, that as artists, we can explore all of these areas and talk about all of these things. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, you, you popped my podcast cherry too. So this is my first, uh, this is the, the first, <laughs> this is my first one. So hopefully it's a, it's a keeper. Awesome, man. I hope you know, you'll, you'll, once you're on this, you'll be on a zillion others and I'll, I'll be jealous <laughs> because you know, you left me in the dust, but nevertheless, I'm really, I'm so happy to have had you here. This has been so much fun. And I honestly feel like we could go on for another two hours. I know. Yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to stop, but yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff so much. Wow, wasn't that great? Wasn't Ryan a great guest? And wasn't this a lot of fun? And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Make sure you check out Ryan's work at ryanheshka.com. That's R-Y-A-N-H-E-S-H-K-A.com. Ryan's got lots of stuff for sale there. You can find prints and you can find comics and you can find all kinds of things. Be sure to pick up Fetal's, his wonderful catalog. If you're new to his work, it will introduce you to the great world of Ryan Heshka. And uh, I love it. It's a great book. I love it. Fantastic, colorful dreamscape. If you are lucky enough to be at the Joshua Tree in California, you can see Ryan's work beginning November 12th at the Hey There Gallery. Uh, He's part of a group show that's up, I suppose, for about a month. So check out uh, Ryan's work there at the Hey There Gallery. Uh, It's a wonderful opportunity to see Ryan Heschke's work in person. Uh, He did indeed finish some paintings. I don't know if those are... I haven't talked to him since then, so I don't know if those are the paintings that were waylaid along the way by FedEx, but uh, I know he was painting feverishly, so it could be some brand new work. I'll have to check with him, but hey there, Gallery, November 12th. Be there, and for Ryan Heshka, show your support for the arts. Well, uh, speaking of the arts, I've got my own stuff coming up. I've got something very special in the works. This is going to be a special month on Blockhead. We are paying tribute to Charles Schultz's 100th birthday. Uh, Next time, uh, I'm going to be interviewing very shortly Jason Chatfield, the president of the National Cartoonist Society, the cartoonist behind the Australian, venerable Australian comic strip Ginger Megs, which is available on Go Comics, and uh, a stand-up comedian, among other things. So I'm looking forward to having Jason on to talk about his work and to talk about Charles Schultz and his involvement with the National Cartoonist Society. Also, in the forthcoming weeks, I'm going to have Lex Fajardo back. Great friend of the show, Lex Fajardo from the Schultz Studio, will be here to talk more about Charles Schultz and Charles Schultz's 100th birthday and all of the, uh, the wonderful things going on. Uh, in celebration of this great centennial, among which is something very special from from me, from why, 
and that is a tribute to Charles Schultz and to Peanuts in the form of a fan film called Charles, what is it called? It's called Good Grief by Schultz, and it is going to debut, it's a 10-minute animated film, and is going to debut on YouTube on my channel, Jeff Grogan's Blockhead, on the day itself, November 26th, that's a Saturday, at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So you can actually make an appointment to be there during the uh, initial launch of the video at 10 a.m. on November 26th. And I think uh, you'll be able to engage in commentary, uh, ask questions with, with me uh, uh, right there at the opening. I think that's what they, they promise on one of these YouTube premieres anyway. So I'm really excited about it. I've spent several years working on this 10-minute film. It is an adaptation uh, of the great K. Ballard, Arthur Siegel album, Good Grief, Charlie Brown, Peanuts from 1962. And if you remember way back at the beginning of the show, I expressed my admiration for that album. And I think I also expressed uh, the idea that it might be great if somebody, you know, made some animated films of this this album. And lo and behold, uh, if it wasn't me <laughs> who did. So uh, I've worked pretty hard on it. I'm really excited about it. I, um, you know, I wanted to pay tribute as best I possibly, in, in the best way I possibly could to Charles Schultz and to Peanuts, which has brought so much to my life and to the lives of so many, so many of us who love comics and cartooning. And even those who don't, uh, still love Charlie Brown and Snoopy and the gang. And uh, so this is for, for Charles Schultz. This is for, dare I call him, Sparky. Uh, and his 100th birthday. Hard to believe, really. And it's hard to believe he's been gone for 20 years. Uh, breaks my heart <laughs> when I think about it. But okay, so let's celebrate Charles Schultz. Let's celebrate Peanuts. And, uh, and, and well, join me in celebration on November 26th at 10 a.m. on YouTube at Jeff Grogan's Blockhead for the premiere of Good Grief by Schultz, my 10-minute animated film dedicated to the memory of the great man. Okay, I'm more about that. Follow me on Instagram at greenscreencomic or at Grogan Jeff. I'm more often at greenscreencomic, so follow me there, and uh, there'll be lots of reminders about this. You can actually go to YouTube and sign up to be notified uh, the day of the debut. So, um, so, you know, be on the lookout for it, okay? And I think that's, that's all I've got to offer right now. I should be back very soon with Jason Chatfield to talk about the National Cartoonist Society, to talk about Ginger Meggs, to talk about Charles Schultz, and then Lex Fajardo. And then the big day will be soon after. So come back, and I'll, I'll bring you more stuff very soon. Uh, and as always, I hope you enjoy the show. And I hope you're feeling well. And I hope the fall has been nice to you. And, and uh, well, just thanks for listening. <laughs>